listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. This past week, a friend sent me a photo of a magazine. It's the CAMFT Therapist Magazine. That's for the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists. And the article was all about normalizing and preparing therapists to encourage and kind of coexist with consensual non-monogamy. We're going to be talking about that in just a little bit. My guest today is Michael Gasparo. He works with the Breakthrough Clinic in Los Angeles. He himself has shared his story here on Trending, you can pull it up on our website. And he's also been a regular guest addressing the issue of same-sex attraction, um, the freedom that the Catholic Church offers in chastity, and the beauty of what marriage is, what healthy sexuality is. So, Michael, before we dive into anything else, Lent is coming up. And I want to remind all of us that we kind of need to plan for Lent in order for it to be successful sometimes. What has been your favorite thing you've done in the past for Lent? Oh, I think one of the favorite things I've done is in social media adjustments, I'll call them. <laughs> so somehow utilizing social media differently during Lent to draw attention to my tendency to use it as a distraction and spiritually, it definitely challenges me. I love that you said social media adjustment, because I think that that's awesome. When people go cold turkey, excellent. Some people need that. But some people, you know, it also helps to, well, how can I just adjust to use this correctly? And sometimes that's almost harder. Yeah, abstinence sometimes can be easier. The problem is you're not ultimately just doing something to change a pattern for after Lent. You're also looking at how is this impacting me spiritually in the moment? So one of the ways I tried to adjust once was just saying, I'm not going to look at Instagram at all uh, during the day or maybe two days a week. So there's little things. Everyone has their own path to discerning their Lenten sacrifice. But I found that for me, finding moderation in social media use in new ways during Lent was especially, especially challenging for me. Later on, we'll be talking with Michael about why should Lent go beyond self-help practices? Because ultimately, Lent is about a spiritual journey. And sometimes I think um, both Catholics and, if you notice, our non-Catholic friends, family members have started to practice Lent, you know, the idea of giving up things. And I think part of that is because our culture loves self-help, you know, these top five things to do to help you sleep better, the top 10 best ways to lose weight. Like we love those lists. Well, you guys, that's not Lent. Lent is a radical transformation of who you are to reorient yourself to God and literally eradicate sin from your life. And do your penance for the sins you have committed. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later on. Don't go away. We want to get that prep work in for Lent. In the meantime, Michael is the one who sent me this article that from the Therapist magazine about consensual non-monogamy explained to therapists. Can you tell us a little bit about this, Michael? Well, the first word that comes to mind is nonsense. <laughs> so I hate to be so abrupt, but I almost did fall off my chair, even though the instructions of the subtitle of the article say, don't fall off your chair. <laughs> so 
I have to admit that I was a little bit shocked by the whole premise of this article, which basically says anything other than monogamy should be respected as equal and like and likeness and dignity to heterosexual monogamy. To that, I say both. So we can go. What, what was that, Michael? Why. You went out for a second. I said, oh, sorry. I said, <laughs> when you tell me that everything about consensual non-monogamy is equal in likeness and dignity to heterosexual marriage, I say baloney. <laughs> I hate to be so childish in my critique, but the first thing to do is just to start off with a full stop. This is garbage. Full stop. You know, it's funny because I was watching, by the way, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timory. That's Michael Gasparro. Thanks for joining us. Um, I was watching Victoria, re-watching it with my husband, the one that's done by BBC and PBS, the Masterpiece Collection. And it's so interesting because one of her prime ministers, one of Vic- Queen Victoria's prime ministers is Lord Palmerston. And in the show, it's depicted, I don't know if this is true, but in the show, it's depicted that he and his wife have an open marriage. You know, she'll live in the country and Ireland. He's, you know, with the queen. He is working and it's known that he has extramarital relationships. And it's so interesting when um, both Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, find this out. And Victoria's kind of like looking at them thinking, well, maybe that is something good. Maybe that would be something that would work. And it's in the midst of this marital struggle that she is having with her husband. And I think that there's something to that, that our culture right now, here's the idea of non-monogamy. And they think, well, maybe this will heal some dissatisfaction I'm experiencing. Or maybe this might even spice things up a little bit. Why not? I wish I was on video because you could see me rolling my <laughs> eyes. They're rolling into the back of my head. It's such a hard eye roll that I don't even know which way is up and down. So here's the thing. Yes, is it possible that some pleasure can come from non-monogamous experiences? Sure. In fact, in this article, they highlight there are a couple of kinds of consensual non-monogamy that seem preferable to the secular culture. One, polyamory. That means any conglomeration of relationship constellations is good. Two guys, one girl, three girls, one guy. I don't even know. Then the other is swinging or open relationships. They don't ever mention polygamy. My instinct is that it's because it's too taboo traditionally to mention that, even though what they're describing essentially usually ends up harming women more than men. Because I don't know many men who are willing to share their girlfriend with several other guys. So usually, I think this comes back down to a sexist position. Most of the time, the people who pay the price in these open relationships are women when their male counterparts want to use excuses to bring other sexual partners into it. Now, it's not always the case, Timory. I know that some women like polyamorous relationships and some women like polygamy, but I would say there's a lot of sexism hidden in this agenda. Michael, I'm dying over here because this is one of those moments where I'm thinking, am I old enough to be talking about this? And I talk about a lot of like too men, too much type of things. But this is one of those where it's are you kidding me? Like, are we really talking about this? Yet people would respond, Michael, and say, you know what? It's 2020. Humans have evolved. They don't need marriage. Or maybe they're okay with open marriages. I mean, I have someone who went to school with me at a small Catholic university, and a couple years after graduating, they said that, well, humans are have evolved. They don't need all of this. So I would ask them to make the case for what children need. We talked about earlier 
how often the discussion around marriage is most fruitful when we talk about the non just the couple themselves. And so if in these contexts of these non-monogamous consensual relationships, there are children involved, which is the result of frequent sexual activity, unless you've surgically been sterilized, and even then sometimes you can still have children, what is the impact of this on future generations? What is the impact of this on the unwitting participants, the children you've brought into these nightmarish scenarios of swinging and sexual liberation? And I would argue the impact is strong and clear. It's negative. Now, it doesn't mean everything about those situations is negative for those children. It means the aspects of those consensual non-monogamous relationships that is non-monogamous is going to impact on the stability of the marital dyad and thus the stability emotionally of the children involved. You know, it's interesting you say that because people might say, well, we don't really have evidence necessarily of that. We're not really seeing it in the culture. And I know this is not going to be popular with a lot of people, but this is where we almost do have to speak to the experience of children whose parents have been divorced. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. the church holds very strongly to the teaching that once married, always married. Unless for some reason, when you were first married, there was something going into that marital covenant that was not true, that was a lie, that we were lying with our words, with our bodies, something that was hidden. That marriage may be annulled. To make a marriage null means that it was never a true marriage. So in this instance, there are people who have been divorced and remarried or divorced and have partners, and those are extramarital relationships. And the children are suffering because their mother or their father is engaging in a relationship with someone who is not their parent. And so we do see that children of divorce experience tremendous pain in their upbringing when they see these other people coming into the lives of their parents. And if you just want to get a glimpse of this, look at the work of Layla Miller, look at the work of Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, where we see children of divorce actually speaking up. And Catholics are not prudish. We are not puritanical. Sex is beautiful. It's amazing. And when used in the right context, it completes the marital bond in a way that is beyond human experience in almost any other capacity. So we want to be clear. You and I both are very vocal advocates for the beauty and awesomeness of our sexual desire, our sexuality, and how we enact that in marriage. But it's not an anything-goes mentality, because if that's the case, like this article's arguing, eventually people get hurt along the way. And this psychologist who wrote this article, I forget her name, uh, but she makes the argument that it's simply our bias as Western people because of the religion over time that has turned us against what could be these amazing, healthy opportunities, and we should put aside our biases to help support our clients in that goal. Well, I say to that, boo, (laughs) because here's the thing. It's not just about a bias. It's about reality. And reality is reflected in cultures as well as in biology. And we are designed to be in stable, attached relationships. And when you enter into these ambiguous, non-state or unstable dyads, triads, and other forms of sexual bizarre conglomerations, you undermine the very stability that a provides for families, for their children, and for the freedom to feel fully engaged in the sexual act. 
without fear of STIs, without fear of pregnancies of people who you're not ready to raise a child with. We're talking about Catholics. We are for awesome sex. We are pro-great sexual life in marriages. We want to help protect that for people, which is why this article does not support what a Catholic conscience would allow as a therapist for myself. Now, I wouldn't, the last thing I'll say to me is I wouldn't judge clients if they came in with this. I would hold space for them, talk with them about their circumstances. I wouldn't yell at them or try to force them to change because that's a client's right. We respect self-determination as therapists at the Reintegrative Therapy We do not, however, collude with pathology or go against our own conscience to support clients' poor behavior choices. That's Michael Gaspar. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. I think I'm using this phrase correctly. Serial polygamy, that's what most people live, even though they're not married. They're basically, you know, just having multiple partners, right? Is that, I'm not sure if I'm using that correctly. Do you know? Yeah, I've heard that term serial monogamy even, and both probably exist. It's sort of like how many people are you engaged with at the same time? And are you moving from relationship to relationship? Or are you engaging in multiple relationships at once? Both of those lend themselves towards unstable senses of attachment. You're not feeling secure in your attachment with that one person. And so that's going to undermine well-being we seek in relationship. What's underlying behind that, that unstable sense of attachment? Often people begin to have attachment issues from a very young age. In families, if you can voice that your needs and your wants are important and that it's likely they'll be responded to by your parents and family members with clear attempts at meeting those needs, even if it's imperfect, then you often have secure attachments from an early age. And people with insecure attachments probably have a harder time securing attachments in relationships in adulthood. Interesting. So I think that this is a key topic, and it's something that your colleague um, has shared with us about Michael, uh, sorry, Thomas Schmier. Uh, and when we talk mm-hmm. about, you know, creating healthy attachments, um, the importance of being affirmed, you know, it, we're living in the midst of a generation, I think almost two generations, because I think both the millennial generation and the current Gen Z have been unaffirmed. But even, you know, that Gen X has had, you know, that first level of generation that has faced divorce and promiscuity in the culture, even that rejection of their own children because they could have aborted them. And so sometimes they look back at their children from Gen X and think, you know, hey, I didn't have to have you. You know, maybe you were a hindrance. We start to have this, you know, uh, attitude of, you know, you were a waste. You caused problems. You, you hear people say this, that this has caused a tremendous lack of correct attachment and affirmation for so many people. And so my question always is, what can we do if maybe, you know, you feel like you're a product of that? Well, I think the first thing for your audience to remember is that therapy can be a helpful way to address attachment wounds. So people who have broken childhoods, like you're talking about children of divorce, people whose parents were unable to form a secure attachment style in their home for abuse or addiction or other issues, should have hope, because we believe in a God that is a God of all healing. So it is possible to seek healing for these relational wounds that are limiting our ability to form secure attachments in our adulthood, whether it's in a marriage or with friends. That's my first message, is one of hope. And second, you're right to note a generation of people were raised with the idea that divorce is the norm, it's okay, there's no issues with it at all, and abortion is acceptable. So, of course, we see a rise in this interest in completely sort of disordered relationship structures, and we as Catholics should speak to that. 
this is a, a direct connection with the disintegration of what marriage is in our society. Amen. That's Michael Gasparro. You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray. See what happens when we go off the path of what God created for marriage. And so here we are in the midst of whether you or someone you know and love has experienced this. We have resources. CatholicTherapist.com. Michael Gasparro belongs to this network. He's doing awesome work with the Breakthrough Clinic in Los Angeles. We have Reintegrative Therapists. Also, you can check out ReintegrativeTherapy.com. Please use these resources resources because healing these wounds that our culture has led us down the path of is so important for finding that true freedom that's so important that's what therapy is all about again that's catholictherapist.com as an excellent resource michael i want to talk to you about another one of those episodes and we got to be you know careful how much we say here but there was an episode of um, having to do with attraction on Netflix. It's their program that was hosted for sex education between, um, you know, really Netflix and Vox. They're trying to, you know, really influence teenagers here who are looking at Netflix. And they did a whole series. We talked about sexual fantasies in the last episode. And I want to touch on the episode where they talk about attraction. Some of the things that stood out to me uh, were really interesting. They initially started to talk about, well, how are we attracted to people? And they started to make the claim that it has to do with fertility, that fertility drives attraction. It dives into the topic of pheromones, how, you know, we're more interested in someone when they are fertile. It didn't fully go down that path. But then it's funny because they start to make this claim, Michael, then they throw it out the door and ultimately land at the conclusion of you're attracted to whatever and whoever you're attracted to. And, you know, just go for it. It's totally fine. Don't worry about it. You know, women, um, you know, are attracted and stimulated more by certain things than men. And like it just starts to go down like taking test models of how people's bodies physically relate to things. And the whole justification is you swing the way you swing. You like what you like. Good on you. And I'm not surprised at all by this. So Netflix has a history of doing things like this. But we should be wary, and especially because it's rated TV mature, which means teenagers aren't even really supposed to be watching it. I think 17 and above should even be warned. So just so your viewer or your listeners know, watch it. we want you to understand that this is what is propagated amongst teens, because they have access to Netflix. We, we know this. So here's the thing. You're absolutely onto something when you say, however you swing is, is what you want and just go for it, because that's prevalent in the secular culture. But for my clients at the Reintegrative Therapy Association, many of them have desires that are contradictory to their conscience, and they know would ultimately lead them down a path that makes them unhappy. So if they, for instance, have same-sex attraction, maybe the culture says, go ahead, act on it, do whatever you want. But to them, they think, I have the right to live according to my conscience and my own personal beliefs. And what's cool, Timory, is that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we believe he passed on to his church the ability to teach us about faith and morals in a way that, as I hear some other people say, is the blueprint for human flourishing. So we can rejoice in that and say, be free. Look, here's something you can consider that the culture isn't telling you, that just because you like something in the moment, that desire doesn't guarantee lasting joy or peace in your life. Momentary pleasure is not the same thing as a sense of internal well-being and peace. And I have clients, Tim, who have a variety of sexual proclivities that I'm not going to go into specifically, but let's just say 
All of those proclivities, many of them are disordered, and not all of them are just same-sex attraction. And the reason I highlight that is we're not targeting people with SSA and saying, you're bad or you're wrong. We're saying anyone who has sexual chaos that falls outside of this intrinsic path of living a life in accord with the Church teachings on sexuality, you don't have to go down that path. And if you choose to, there's redemption, there's healing, you can always come back. Michael, I think that a big sign of what has caused so much of the sexual deviance is pornography. And we don't like to talk about it, but I was just looking at another stat. If you didn't hear the episode, it was just an awesome episode last week with Father Robert Spitzer where we talk about what is a woman. And we talk about it also in relation to what happened at the Super Bowl halftime show and kind of the uproar over it. But if people aren't with me, because a lot of people, Michael said, you know, they were just shaking their hips. What's the big deal? And listen, I come from the performing world. I have done Polynesian dancing, Tahitian dancing, jazz, tap belly, you name it. But there's a line. And there's a line that I myself had to face and battle as well. I was just talking to my mom about it. the last year of my actively performing and dancing. There was a huge change in the culture where dance was becoming so sexualized. You know, it was no longer as I was taught growing up, you know, be sassy, not sexy. It was everything was sexualized. The person was sexualized. The dance was. And so if you think that I may be saying too much, if I'm, you know, not able to enjoy entertainment, Pornhub is the perfect example. I don't have the numbers in front of me right now. But the numbers went up astronomically after the Super Bowl for searches of Shakira and J-Lo on Pornhub. That should show something about the sexual deviance and the objectification that we are experiencing right now in the culture. And you bring up a great point about dance is not intrinsically bad. We are not Puritans, right? You're a dancer, Timory, and you love dance. And so that's such a great witness for our culture to see is it's not that you're opposed to dance or even some dance that incorporates aspects of our human sexuality to share with the world the gift of movement yes. and of the human person, but that's very different than dancing in a way to explicitly objectify yourself to others so that you feel empowered by that in some form or fashion. And ultimately, then you're also leading other people to sin. So that's something consider as a Christian person when you both engage in entertainment and when you provide entertainment for other people. That's Michael Gaspar. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Be sure to follow me on Instagram. You can find me at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. We talk about things such as the Super Bowl, Shakira, J-Lo, and other interesting things that come up about the stories that we've been discussing. Coming up, we'll be talking about Lent. Michael, you also watched the um, contraception episode on birth control by Sex Explained. And just a warning to parents, not a show to have your kids watching, not necessarily even yourself. Here's what I'd recommend. If you want to learn about what's being taught to basically high schoolers and the show and the culture overall, listen to it. Because especially the one on sexual fantasies, I ended up just shutting it off, but I was listening and covered the screen up. What was said in the episode having to do with contraception? One of the takeaways that it's good for your audience to hear about is that the development of hormonal contraceptives came at a great cost to women's well-being. And this is very important for women to hear, that male doctors, especially in a male-dominated field, felt very empowered to experiment on women's bodies using a variety of what would be considered now even unethical methods. And women deserve to know the full story. Mm, so would you recommend that episode? I would recommend 
for a parent who wants to know what the culture is pushing about birth control to listen to it and understand their angle. But keep in mind, they have an agenda, which is to say that birth control and contraceptives are good. It's just that maybe we didn't go about it the right way. And at the end of the day, we want to point out that the problem was in not just the process, but in the content as well. Absolutely. I think that's a really key takeaway because it's not just contraception, but it's also abortion. How did they create those these procedures? There is a reason, and we'll have to take this up soon on the show, why a lot of the research for contraception and abortion methods were done outside of the country in third world areas where people were literally dying and being mutilated. You guys, this is why the church speaks up for women and the exploitation of women, because we believe women deserve more. And if you want to hear more about what's the mission of women and the beauty of women, head over to Radio Trending and listen to that last episode. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. What a neat time to start to prepare for Lent. We're still a couple weeks out and we need to make a plan. So I'll be giving some tips for what to do here, but what a neat opportunity to have an associate marriage and family therapist, Michael Gasparo, with us today. And here's my question for you, Michael. In preparing for Lent, why should Lent go beyond self-help practices? Because you're a Catholic and you're all about self-help practices and healing, but it's more than that. It's not a therapy session. What are your thoughts there? Well, I don't know about you, but every Lent after it finishes, I know I'm perfect. I've solved my issues. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that not how Lent works for you? Oh, okay. Just me? Okay. No, usually halfway no, so through, I it's think... like, I failed. I haven't even done half the things I wanted to do. <laughs> so what I, I asked that question, and I make that joke, because if Lent was just about self-help, then it would be an ultimate fail if you weren't automatically doing all of the things you wanted to do right away at the end of Lent and into the Easter season. But remember, we're not just giving up bad habits for Lent. We're actually even sometimes giving up giving up good things to fight either a penance or an attempt at noticing where our spiritual attachments are, limiting our spiritual growth. I love that. So we talked earlier about one of the things you really tried to do before, and that was you loved doing the social media readjustment. Now, you did that. Why did you do that? And again, you don't have to share too much unless you want to. I'm going to guess there's a spiritual dimension to it. Yeah, I still work on this, and I'm in the midst of probably having a similar Lenten journey this year. I chose last year to work on adjusting how I use social media, largely because I noticed it was often in an autopilot mode. And what I mean by that, that comes from Dr. Greg Botero. Dr. Greg Botero out of New York, who's a Catholic psychologist, uses the term mindfulness in a very Catholic context. And by that, he means approaching life from a really being mode, not autopilot. And geez, I'll tell you what, when I get my phone out half the time, I'm on autopilot. I click to Instagram, then to Facebook, then to YouTube. And I, before I realized it, spent 10 full minutes on social media without even noticing So my reason for using this practice during Lent of adjusting my social media use was because not that social media is bad, but I noticed there's some of an attachment to using it as a distraction that spiritually isn't serving me well all the time. So Lent is a chance 
opportunity to readjust a little bit and be more mindful about how I'm consuming social media. But that doesn't mean it's for everyone or for everyone needs to do it in that way. And I'm going to make it a recommendation. It's a little extreme, but I actually have a lot of listeners of Trending who did this with me a few years ago and still live by it, including Father Tim Grumbach. He's with me on this. We have most of our technology on a black and white screen. I have had my phone on a black and white screen, I think, since about 2016. So about three and a half years now. And I know some people are going to go, wow, you're paying for such expensive technology and so forth. Yes, but I don't need to be getting pleasure out of it. I need to use it as a tool. And let me tell you this, the first week of having my phone on black and white, I remember looking at my phone because, so say you're driving, you're at a light, my hand would be itching to pick it up. I'd pick it up and then I would look at the screen and I'd literally look at the screen and either say out louder in my head, this is so dissatisfying. <laughs> and it was so interesting to me. And I think, unfortunately, some of the strength of that has worn off somewhat, but there is this allure of the colors and the way it influences the brain and how we're drawn in and same thing with a lot of the notifications. Um, so, you know, it's something to keep in mind, but it's called the black and white challenge. You can find it at radiotrending.com. I really recommend this. If you're the person who needs to be better with social media, that is one great option, I think. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'll let you know if I take up that challenge. I know that for me, social media can be used well, and it can be used in a very poor way. So I, I certainly want to offer to your listeners that I am standing here as a, a fellow human being in need of continued pruning in this regard. So this is a great LinkedIn challenge for all of us. So I have another idea, um, too, for finding something to do for Lent. And Michael, throw your ideas in here. That's Michael Gasparro. You're listening to Trending with Timory. One of the things that we can work on is maybe there's some sort of deep-seated desire going on in yourself and you know you know it isn't quite right maybe i have an ulterior motive maybe there's a reason i'm getting angry about something maybe there's a reason i'm having this dissatisfaction maybe working on tempering whatever that desire might be and making a plan for behavioral modification when it comes up or making a plan so that it doesn't happen in advance do you have any advice for that michael I think one great thing for your listeners to consider is noticing the desire first. So, like, it sounds obvious, right? Notice what it is. But sometimes Mm -hmm. when we want things, we want them so bad that we just go right to it. Again, coming back to the autopilot idea. So what I ask my clients sometimes is we deal with same-sex attraction, and they sometimes deal with enacting behaviors that are not healthy for them, that are not in line with their goals or their conscience. I just say, hey, why don't you take a moment, whenever you notice this proclivity is coming up, and say, what am I feeling? What am I thinking right now, and what am I wanting? Do an assessment of how you're thinking, how you're feeling, and what you're really wanting. And a lot of times what you're wanting is more than what that behavior is offering you. So we're looking for kindness or connection or compassion or feeling wanted. And so when we slow down, it helps us not only to notice the desire, but to maybe look at the underlying need that's greater than the specific action would give us to begin with, and we can look for a healthier way to start enacting getting that need met in a good, positive sense. I love it. Okay, here's another one. My husband right now is 
loving reading about the Crusades. And he was telling me about some of the stories of the people behind the Crusades and how a lot of the men who were participating in the Crusades were doing it for the greater glory of God, for the kingdom of God to help in the mission of the Crusades. But he was also sharing that some of the men also recognized this was a penitential act for the sin they themselves had committed during their lives. And so they were, you know, pummeling their body, making the sacrifices as St. Paul talks about. And I was thinking about how maybe there's a sin that you're attached to and you, or maybe a sin that you're not attached to anymore, but you still keep being reminded of it. Maybe you need to make some sort of reparation. Maybe you need to this Lent go and volunteer at, you know, a crisis pregnancy center, at a homeless shelter, whatever that might be to help you in offering something up to make reparation for that sin. Any ideas here, Michael? Well, one thing to consider is that as Catholics, we believe that penitential acts to make reparation for sin is not the same as being forgiven for that sin. Amen. So I do think it's good to help people remember that forgiveness is a gift. Grace is a gift. And then reparation is the process that kind of enacts the healing that the forgiveness initiated. And I'm not explaining it perfectly, and I'm not a theologian, but we do want to offer that clarity. I think that's important because we're not telling people, if you do this, that will mean you're forgiven right. because you weren't forgiven already. But we are saying there are holes in your fence, like nails in the fence. Jesus pulled the nails out, but there's still holes. So how can we help fill in the holes right. of the fence? And you mentioned going to a homeless shelter. Well, another great option to consider is if you struggle with pornography, maybe a reparation is to give up uh, some social media use that we talked about already, or make sure you're monitoring your reading versus your, your technology use. Or if you want, there's plenty of young people who need support and understanding the church's teachings of sexuality. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is drastic, but there are missionary groups such as the Culture Project or National Evangelization Team or other people in your own church who need ministers or catechists to come in and work with the teens. Maybe a great consider is joining your catechesis team and passing on some of these church teachings to young people and really getting in the trenches with them. And I'll just touch on really quick because you did a great job. You know, one of the reasons, yes, God obliterates, knocks out the sins that we have committed. They are no there. He doesn't even think about them. They're gone, right? When we go to confession, when we are healed by the blood of the lamb, when that priest is acting in persona Christi, that does mm -hmm. not mean, though, necessarily for everyone that maybe they still feel bad. Maybe there's some healing that needs to go on in their life. Maybe they feel bad for the people they've hurt still. And so that's where sometimes the reparation back into our community, uh, back into our families, that's where sometimes that reparation helps with the healing process. Not that we haven't been forgiveness forgiven because forgiveness is through God, but we can help in repairing those broken bonds to society and our own humanity. And, and that's the beautiful thing of when God brings things for his glory out of our own darkness or the experience of sin in our life. From our greatest wounds, sometimes comes God's greatest gift to the community through us. I want to encourage people to maybe if you're married or maybe, you know, you live with roommates or family members, honestly consider asking them what you can work on this Lent. See what the suggestions are of other people, because sometimes, you know, the people we live with are the best people to actually tell us this. Now, I'm not telling you to go and tell someone else what they can work on. Please don't go and do that. But if you're going to ask, here's my challenge. 
honestly ask if you're going to and don't get mad and don't make excuses when you hear what they have to say and also don't object take it for what it is contemplate it think about it and see what might happen yeah that's opening yourself up to a serious vulnerability but a beautiful opportunity for growth i'll have to definitely consider that with my roommates i'm sure they'd be happy to share <laughs> the areas that i could continue to grow michael thanks so much for being with us where can people go to find out more about you and your work if they want to about our work with people who are dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction, they can visit us at the Reintegrative Therapy Association. That's reintegrativetherapy.com or at the breakthroughclinic.com where we help people deal with a whole variety of mental health challenges such as addictions, depression, anxiety, etc. Excellent. You can catch other episodes where Michael has joined us here on Trending, including his own testimony that he shared a couple of months ago. Just head over to our guest page at radiotrending.com. And underneath his bio, you can learn all of the different episodes and various topics having to do with sexuality where Michael joins us. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. We've been putting our finger on the pulse of the culture surrounding abortion. If you didn't catch it a few weeks ago, I was talking about how we need to change how we ourselves are dialoguing on the abortion issue. And I think that a lot of the statistics coming out point to this. Most people disagree with late-term abortion. A lot of people even disagree with second trimester abortion. In fact, most people don't even realize that abortion is legal, let's say from the third, fourth, fifth month on. Honestly, when I share with people that abortion is totally legal, totally kosher in that third trimester, they're shocked. When they realize that the baby that would be born the same day could be aborted, they're flabbergasted by it. You know, I have lived in California my whole life, and I have lived with the reality that we have late-term abortion clinics in this state. There are multiple other states that also have late-term abortion, which is why 2019 was a turning point. And I keep saying this because it reopened the conversation about late-term abortion because a lot of people didn't realize it was there. And then they were flabbergasted when they saw places such as New York or such as Illinois passing laws to right into the state constitution in case Roe versus Wade was overturned that abortion needed to be legal through all nine months of woman's pregnancy. So if Roe v. Wade's overturned, at least that state has a law in the books for abortion because the law will go back or the decision will go back to the states if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So what's on the books? That's part of the cultural battle, battle that we are seeing right now. We see so many states like Alabama. We see states such as Iowa and many others trying to make sure that they're passing new pro-life or pro-abortion laws. And we'll see some court battles coming up all the way up to the Supreme Court over restrictions on abortion. So 
one of the things I keep saying is that we need to change how we're talking about abortion. And this is what we need to do. One, we need to agree with other people and help them to see that we're not that far apart. Late-term abortion, we agree on. We need to talk about the current laws that have been passed surrounding late-term abortion. But two, we need to take the conversation, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because it's a harder conversation at times and we need to be well-schooled on it, back to contraception and early abortion. Because most people are okay with abortion when it's really early because they dehumanize the baby. But not only that, they dehumanize the value of the woman and the painful experience she herself experiences and walks with for the rest of her life after having an abortion. That's post-abortion syndrome. So I'm looking at recent stats that have come out the beginning of 2020 from Kaiser Permanente. They have actually done some really great research, not just here on the life issue, but also on gender as well. I know we've talked about some of the studies in the past. Stay tuned because they're really able to pull some excellent data out. One of the things that came out with regard to abortion is we see basically the country's split almost 50-50 with regard to abortion laws or laws that are passed to restrict abortion when a fetal heartbeat is detected. The latest scientific data absolutely confirms that by 16 days, that sweet little precious baby's heart is beating. In fact, most women have no clue that they're pregnant yet. And yet, you know, that child's heart is beating and pumping blood and that child is developing so quickly. So we see that 49% of Americans believe that we should support fetal heartbeat bans and we should support banning abortion after six weeks. So it's almost 50% of the nation. But then 50% of the nation opposes fetal heartbeat bills. What do you think about this? I'd love to hear from you. You can send me a message at radiotrending.com or on social media. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Timmery. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. Now, this is something I do want to get your opinion on. Why do you think your friends, family members, colleagues are okay with early abortion? Why is it they don't want to put a ban after a baby's heart is detected? You know, I think it's just amazing to me that we've devalued the person so much that, you know, people are out there. I saw a campaign the other day. I don't know if I mentioned this on the show yet. I don't think so. But I was sitting out to lunch and it was in a grocery store that had a deli. And as I'm sitting in the deli area, there's a sign that says, give bees a chance. And as I'm looking at the sign, I thought, isn't that interesting? Whether it's bees or whether it's, you know, seals. I always love that pro-life shirt that put a baby on like the seashore and it said, save the baby humans instead of save the baby seals. Because it really does put it into context. We've devalued human life and we've lifted up the animal kingdom, animal life. Isn't that fascinating? And so when I was looking at this save the bees campaign, give bees a chance, I was thinking about how well, shouldn't we give babies a chance? And not only that, should we maybe answer the cultural heartbreak over infertility? And if you don't want your child, if you know someone who doesn't want their child, couldn't we give the parents who are infertile and desperately waiting, I mean, 10 years or even longer at times to adopt a child, couldn't we give them a chance of parenthood? In the midst of your own darkness and despair and struggle, isn't that something we could offer? Give parents a chance? Give babies a chance. 
I think that this is something we need to help people understand that the culture is hungry for more families. I mean, I've been noticing over the last couple of months, there has been actually an increase in um, like pro baby ads where you're seeing a lot more advertisement, at least here in Southern California, of a woman who's pregnant or a husband and wife with a baby in utero. And I think that the change in advertisement speaks to a desire in the culture, the desire for permanence, the desire for good, healthy, joyful relationships the desire to settle settle down and really build good roots, but also the desire for children. And that desire has been pushed out of the way with this contraceptive culture that we have been building up. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Thanks for joining us. You can follow me on social media at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E for updates on all of the stories that we're discussing. So when we're talking about this contraceptive mindset, we have the distinct opportunity to bring up how this contraceptive mindset has fed into the fail-safe of abortion and that we've justified a certain type of lifestyle that necessitates abortion in our own mind. But here's what's kind of brilliant. And I think that yet again, it comes back to if we can talk about how most of us agree that late-term abortion isn't okay, we can swing the pendulum back even further. Okay, if late-term abortion isn't okay, so you're not okay with a baby at nine months gestation, what about eight months? And we could go into the weeks and go further and further and back. They're going to have a very difficult time if they're opposed to late-term abortion, justifying abortion earlier in. And the more you can fill in the gaps of knowledge about the development of the baby, the impact on the woman of an abortion, the more you can help them see that their thinking is inconsistent. Again, I always come back to that question. Well, why is abortion okay at three months if it's not okay at 40 weeks? I challenge you. Are you willing to go there and have those conversations? You're not accusing anyone of anything. You're helping plant seeds of questions to help people question what their own ideologies are about these issues. So here's a moment of bipartisan agreement, I would hope. And I think that this was really a takeaway for me in reading or sorry, not reading, watching the State of the Union address over the last couple of weeks is that our president, there was only one time during the State of Union where he said there should be bipartisan agreement here. And that was with regard to late term abortion. And he called on our elected officials to come to an agreement and bring to his desk a law that would ban late-term abortion. And I did think that that was very smart because it goes beyond political parties. It goes beyond a way of life. It goes into the reality that we really do agree on this. Despite, you know, presidential candidates coming out and saying, I'm okay with, you know, late-term abortion. I'm okay with partial birth abortion, whatever they're okay with. That is not what most of the American people think. You know, I mentioned this study from Kaiser earlier in the show that 50% of the United States is in favor of fetal heartbeat bans, and then the other 50% is not. In fact, they think that abortion bans after six weeks isn't okay. But I think that if we were to dive a little deeper and ask those further questions, like a lot of other polls have done, that most people do not want late-term abortion. And so I keep saying this because if we can help people see, I agree with you, we're not that far away, 
we're going to start making more headway in our conversation surrounding abortion. And that's where I come back again to contraception now. Have the conversations about contraception. Sure, start with the secular arguments. Contraception is a group one carcinogen. The estrogen and progesterone are listed on the top carcinogenic elements, those synthetic versions being put into women's bodies where we've seen an increase in numerous types of breast cancer. You want the research? We're going to do a whole episode soon on contraception. Stay tuned. But we talk about this all the time on Trending. If you're listening to the shows, we're feeding you your talking points to go out and have those conversations. Because I can't be there, but you are there with your friends, families, and colleagues and have the opportunity to bring up these issues. You can talk about the influence of blood clotting on women. You can talk about how if we see that all these physical and even psychological problems are going wrong with women who are using contraception, find common ground. See, really, there is bipartisan agreement on a lot of these issues. Thanks for listening. Don't miss an episode. Head over to Radiotrending.com and be sure to subscribe. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit Radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 